The word of the Lord this morning comes to us from Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. And the word of the Lord reads this way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were under two years old, two, two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted, because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of father, his, his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that was what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, what we know not, would you teach us? What we have not, would you give us? And what we are not, would you make us for Christ's sake? And God's people said, Amen. Please be seated. Before I get started this morning, I just have to say that um, Henry McBee is growing up to be a fine young man, got his tie on this morning, and you other gentlemen should follow suit, and I was like, dang, I forgot my tie this morning. I might need to borrow yours, Henry. Like the author of Hebrews, if you remember our series in Hebrews, Matthew, just like the author of Hebrews, is a master of the Old Testament. You'll understand this and see this as we go through his gospel. One commentator said Matthew even gets like the feel of the Old Testament. He's like a master painter, just like the author of Hebrews was, of the Old Testament and bringing these analogies forward for us in the New Testament. He's like a master tapestry weaver. Have you ever seen a tapestry, a large tapestry that has been weaved together? In ancient times, they would put large tapestries up in castles because castles were drafty. And on these tapestries would be exploits of the great men of their land or their family, their family history. And they would hang that on a large tapestry that was weaved together. And oftentimes it would take several years for them to kind of weave together the tapestry of their family history. They would then hang in the castle uh, to be observed for several generations and, and help with the draftiness of the castle. Adding to it as the exploits of the family and the heroic deeds of the family continued on. And Matthew is a master tapestry weaver, if you will, and he is picking up right where the Old Testament prophets left off. If there's a tapestry of the Old Testament, you see strings dangling down from that, from the Old Testament that the Old Testament prophets left, and Matthew is simply coming along in his gospel and taking those threads and beginning masterfully to weave just the right colors in just the right patterns to tell his story, to blend it perfectly with the Old Testament. He continues on weaving the masterpiece that is the Holy Scriptures and is, in fact, the very story of history. <clears throat> and in order to appreciate a masterful um, painting, or in this case, a tapestry, you need to spend a little time looking at the intricate details that make up the whole picture. Coming up close to the canvas, coming up close to the, to the tapestry to observe the intricate colors and to see how they have weaved it together in order to appreciate the details. And then you'll need to step back and observe the whole thing in one large image. Matthew really here, as he begins his gospel, wants his readers 
to see that the Old Testament prophets were talking about Jesus. If we had to kind of boil down what is he trying to get across here, it's the idea that, listen, the Old Testament prophets were talking about Jesus Christ. This morning in our time, we'll look at the details of the tapestry here in our text, because Matthew gives us some details that he pulls on the strings of the Old Testament to weave it together with his gospel here today. We'll look at the details in verses 13 to 23, and then at the second part of our sermon, we're going to step back and kind of see the bigger picture that Matthew is painting, and we'll give some application, all right? Cool. First of all, we're going to look at the story of our text, the story of our text, verses 13 to 23. Let me just read them to you again quickly. The first part here that we're going to be dealing with is the flight to Egypt. And some of your Bibles might be broken up in this way. First of all, the flight of Egypt, flight to Egypt, excuse me. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And they remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill... What the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt, I have called my son. And there's these kind of three distinct pieces of this story that Matthew's going to show us that Jesus is fulfilling the prophecy. And this one here is to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt, I had called my son. He's referring to uh, the prophet Hosea, which is speaking about Israel being called out of Egypt as a people, and God referred to them as his son. As we read this passage and we see Herod's response, it is a declaration that the king is here, the true king is here, and the coming of the king has ramifications for all of life. You have to deal with Jesus. You have to. Either now or one day, you have to deal with him. He is inevitable. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. The king is here, and the king has ramifications for all of life. Luke 1, in his gospel, reminds us that, speaking of Jesus, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. This is the prophecy that was given to the young couple, Jesus' parents, earthly parents. He will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The king is here now, and it has ramifications for all of life. True, one thing that we see here in this is some observations. That First of all, that true belief in Christ always must bow to his lordship. True belief in Christ must always bow to his lordship. The shepherds believed the tidings of the angels, and they went and searched for the Christ, and they worshiped him. The magi believed the signs of heaven. They searched for the Christ, and they worshiped him. Herod believed the prophecies, searched for the Christ, but to destroy him. Herod the Great hated and feared the great son of the Most High. And herein is an interesting fact and a warning to all who seek the Christ child. Believing is nothing unless your belief bows to his lordship. Herod believed and and, and understood the signs. The Christ was come. And many people say they believe in Christ During our Christmas festivities that we just celebrated, countless people around the world sang of tidings of comfort and joy, and yet they had absolutely no understanding of the source of the comfort and joy they were were singing about. And yet they said they believed. And listen, are you aware that it is possible for you to come here week after week, month after month, year after year, and sing songs of salvation peace, and joy, and have no real understanding or relationship with the source of this salvation, peace, and joy. There is a belief that is only lip service. There is a belief that is only a confession, but it does not bow the knee. You can sing of salvation and not be saved. 
You can call him Lord and not know him or serve him as Lord. James reminds us that belief is nothing. Why? He says, well, you believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. At least the demons shudder in fear. That's often better than us sometimes. So you're doing no more good than the demons if you say you believe. Herod, like the demons, believed, and he shuddered at the fact that his throne was in danger. The question really here is, when it comes to salvation, and we're learning this in our evangelism class, is not, the question is not, do you know Jesus, but ultimately, does Jesus know you? Because on that day, he will say, either yes, he knows you and call you into his rest, or he will say, I I never knew you, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, even though you did wonderful things in my name. Jesus himself says, my sheep hear my voice, I know them and they follow me. The reason they follow me is because I know them and I have called them. There is a quote-unquote belief in Christ that never bows to his lordship. This belief will inevitably do the very same thing that Herod did. It will seek to destroy anything that threatens its own lordship and its own great name. This is your proclivity as a human being. You desire to protect your throne. You desire to be like your first parents and be God and swallow the lie of the evil dragon. Philippians 2 says that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. This is the king has come. It has consequences, ramifications for your life. You cannot avoid it. On that day, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess Some will confess him as truly Lord, and some will be shown on that day to only have confessed with their mouth but not lived it with their life, showing there was no true salvation at all. And until that inevitable day, the battle rages in the hearts of every knee to bow and every tongue to confess that we are Lord. That is the great battle that's raging in your heart right now. It's raging as the Holy Spirit takes the light of God's word and shines it on the dark places of your heart. And there is a battle for the throne of your life. Christ says that he will sit upon the throne and be uh, content with nothing other than everything. Everything. Lord over all. And it's easy for us to sing songs of his lordship and of conquest But that that applies to those people out there or the people sitting next to me. But right now as the Holy Spirit shines the light on the dark places of your heart where you are constructing a throne in secret, you do what Pastor Matt showed us last week that Herod did. You send out your army of self-justification, blame-sifting, false piety to destroy anything and anyone that threatens your power, your throne. And you might think that that's a ridiculous comparison, like you're comparing me to Herod? Pastor Jeff, I I wouldn't, I mean, after all, he murdered people to protect his throne. He murdered children to protect his throne. But haven't you resorted to the same in your heart? What have you, what links have you gone to in order to protect your small L, lordship? Have you ever been unrighteously angry in your heart at a person and spoken about them in a slanderous way to smear their good character because what they were saying was threatening the throne of your heart? People will go to great lengths to protect their throne. We only have to look at our recent church history to see how far people will go to suppress the truth and protect their throne. So a question for you to ask this morning in light of our, our time last week is what have you been doing? What will you do to protect your throne and your small L, lordship? When the preaching starts to get too close to your throne, do you send out your assassins like Herod? Oh, he believed, so he's gonna snuff it out. You, you say you believe and you know that this has ramifications for your life. Jesus is not going to settle just to um, have it preached and not have it applied. You can't just hear it, but you have to do it. And you know that. So instead of bowing to his lordship, 
preaching gets too close to the throne, you send out your assassins of criticism nitpicking the sermons. Men, when you see your brothers growing in and calling each other to a robust biblical masculinity and to begin to sense that it's getting harder and harder to hide your shortcomings in these areas, do you send out your assassins of self-justification, blame-shifting, and isolated, high-scoring self-assessments of your character? Well, I don't feel like anybody's investing in me. Isolating yourself from community because the light is shining brighter in your brothers and it's getting harder to hide. Ladies, when your husband tells you no or leads you in a direction that you don't like, do you send out your assassins of manipulation? Gossip to your sisters in Christ under the guise of, can you pray for me in my marriage? Or busybodiness because you don't want to deal with the issues of your own home, you go looking at the issues of other people's homes sticking your nose where it should not be and then being surprised when your nose gets poked, when you stuck it where it shouldn't be. It's because of idleness. Do you justify not following your husband's leadership because he's not meeting your self-made expectations? Children, kids, stop coloring and look up here at me. My boys, you're not in trouble yet. Kids, listen, when your parents call you to obedience, do you send out your little assassins, and you can talk to your parents about this later, what this actually means and how this applies. Do you throw temper tantrums? Do you throw temper tantrums, either outwardly fall on the ground and writhe around like a little demon? which is not acceptable? Or do you have a temper tantrum in your heart? Smile on the outside, but inside, you're throwing a huge temper tantrum. Do you argue with them? Or do you obey and have a really bad attitude in your heart and pout and sulk? And I mean kids little and kids big. Teenagers, how easy is it for you to send out your little assassins of manipulation? When your parents are calling you to walk in, in righteousness, it's really easy for you to say, well, they made a lot of mistakes, or their rules are too strict, and so-and-so, my friend so-and-so, they don't have parents that have this strictness. That's because their parents don't love them, by the way. Do you send out your little excuses? Listen, guys, we, we underestimate how far we are willing to go to protect our lordship and our throne. This is the default mode of all mankind. Left alone to yourself, you will never choose God. You will always choose yourself. Left alone, you will never build God's kingdom. You will always and only build your own kingdom. And left on your own, you will never live for God's glory. You will only and ever live for your glory. So we see here that the king coming means something. It calls us to action. And you either run from him, fight him, or surrender to him. But in the end, every knee will bow. Here this shows us too in the flight to Egypt, that the flight to Egypt highlights the, the sinfulness of humanity. It highlights the sinfulness of humanity. The idea of fleeing to Egypt for safety would have been a shocking and repulsive idea for the Jews reading Matthew's gospel. This is a harsh harsh rebuke from God to Israel. Egypt represents what to Israel? Slavery, sorrow, suffering for all of these people. And Herod here, this shows us that Herod in our story here today is not the only villain. It's really easy to kind of single him out and say he's the only villain. But he's not the only villain in our story the reason that this evil tyrant was on the throne was a direct result of the sinfulness of the nation. The people are also the villains of this story. Calvin says when God wants to judge a nation, he gives them wicked rulers. And this is what's happening. They had walked in disobedience and therefore God put a tyrant on the throne. He's not the only bad guy in the story. 
And, and Matthew, as we go through this, Matthew has packed so many parallels and symbols and, and, uh, and uh, ideas from the Old Testament and the New, these similarities of his story. And we see these parallels in the actions of Herod and Pharaoh. You can go read this on your own time. You can go look at the, um, the Exodus account in Exodus, and you can read this story and see the parallels in your own time. Maybe we'll do some of that in our home groups. You see these parallels between the actions of Herod and Pharaoh. You see Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus, and Joseph of Egypt, Joseph the dreamer. Both of these Josephs had dreams from God that shaped their lives. And you remember that Joseph of the Old Testament was the son of Jacob, who was faithful to God through hardship, and God blessed him when he rose to prominence in Egypt, and and he was very instrumental in saving his people. Joseph of Egypt, Joseph the son of Jacob, was the reason that Israel came to Egypt in the first place. And if you remember the story, it goes like this. Uh, Joseph rose to prominence. He saved his people. He, he managed the, the wealth of uh, the Pharaoh and the Egypt well and was able to bring his family there to save them from starvation. And if you remember what happened then, it says that Joseph died after some time after he had brought his family there. And the scripture says it this way, and a Pharaoh came to power that did not know Joseph. He didn't know Joseph. And this Pharaoh was afraid of how great the people of Israel were becoming. Let me read it to you, Exodus 1, verse 12. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Not just the Pharaoh, but the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Now Matthew 2, our text today, verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. This was last week, Pastor Matt covered this. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. You see some parallels here? Pharaoh and the people of Israel were afraid of the Israelites and their God. They were, being, uh, they were multiplying in number. God was blessing them. And then here Herod, the king, and all of Jerusalem was troubled because of this news about a king. So Pharaoh, what did he do? Pharaoh orders the death of the Israelite baby boys, just like Herod does in our story here. Just like Herod and the reason, listen, the reason that the idea of the Christ child, the Messiah, having to flee to Egypt for safety would have been such a shocking thing and a repulsive thing for the Jews reading Matthew's gospel because Matthew was saying that the roles now were reversed. Israel had forgotten God. Israel would plunged into wickedness, and now Israel has become Egypt. Israel, you are Egypt. You are Egypt. The the roles are reversed now. The same thing is happening again. This this shows that they are slaves, maybe not of the Pharaoh in Egypt anymore, but they are slaves to their sin. And this was a, a harsh rebuke from God. Israel, you have become Egypt. You have become Egypt. So much so that the Christ has to flee to the place that you said you were delivered from, and that is in all your stories, in all the great stories of deliverance, he goes there for safety. This fleeing to Egypt shows us, it highlights the sinfulness of mankind left on our own. Even the people of God run from him. And as a result of this sinfulness, we are exiled from God. So this is what This is what Matthew is pointing out as well. So the first block of fleeing to Egypt, he says, this happens so that it might be fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I have called my son. God called Israel my son and brought them out of slavery. And now the Christ goes to Egypt and he calls him back to Israel. Out of Egypt I have called my son. It is to show us that Jesus is the Messiah that the prophets were talking about and the absolute depths of sin that Israel had plunged into. The second portion in our story today is Herod kills the children then. And Herod, when he had saw, verse 16, that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed the male children in Bethlehem. And in that region, all those who were two years old or under, according to the time that had been, uh, uh, the time that had been ascertained by the wise men, then it was Fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, it was our second prophecy. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. 
maybe 30 to 50 kids, some historians say, some theologians say, were slaughtered. This is a reminder for us of just how evil we are. Israel has become Egypt, and this Jewish ruler is willing to resort to the same tactics of the Pharaoh. If you've ever wondered, guys, how bad you actually are, just know that you are more evil than you ever feared. And I know that seems like a harsh statement, but you are Herod, and you are Israel, and left upon your own, you will always resort to these types of things in order to protect your throne. As a result of your great sinfulness, you have been exiled from God. Gone. Matthew is here referring in this second prophecy of the prophecy of Jeremiah, he's referring to Israel's time in exile. That God brought them out of Egypt, out of slavery, but then they forgot their God and were plunged into wickedness, and God gave them over, and, and foreign rulers came in and took them into exile, took them away, destroyed their homeland. He's saying there's, there's, there's a couple of things that we want to highlight here that we are exiled from God, and this is cause for great sorrow at, at the result of sin. We are exiled from God because of our sin, and there is great sorrow as the result of our sin, the weeping that took place by the women, the children uh, of, of Bethlehem. It was a result of the great sin, not just of a tyrant Herod, but the sin of the people, because they allowed him to be upon the throne. And Matthew's referring here to, again, he's painting this picture and he's weaving together the Old Testament in, the, in, his, uh, in his gospel here. Jeremiah 31 is what he's referring to in this, where he references um, the weeping of Rachel and her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This is to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31 is a chapter of rejoicing that Israel has been returned from exile and he pulls out this little excerpt, this little sad part of Jeremiah 31 to remind us that in the midst of sorrow, in the midst, excuse me, in the midst of triumph at the, at the return from exile, and at the midst of triumph at the coming of the Messiah, the Christ child, it's mixed with sorrow and sadness, that the reason God had to deliver his people was because of their sinfulness. The reason Christ had to come was because of their sinfulness, and sin leads to sorrow and to death. Jeremiah was referring to the death of Rachel, the beloved wife of Jacob, and lament over her death. She was buried near, excuse me, buried near Bethlehem. And Jeremiah is using this, this sad picture, and Matthew is taking that picture out of Jeremiah's prophecy and putting it in our gospel here this morning. He's using that sad picture of Jacob having to bury his beloved wife and leave her there and move on with his family. In particular, he's giving us this word picture of Rachel crying as she is buried there in the ground and her children are leaving her. That's what he says there in verse 17 of, of our text, right? He's talking about Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Rachel is buried in the ground, and her family leaves her there. And what Jeremiah is saying, and what Matthew is saying, he's pulling on that, is that as God's people in Jeremiah 31 are being brought back, it's the story of them being brought back out of exile, many people had died in exile. That they had lost people, casualties of their sin. And they had to, they had to leave them, they buried there. And it was, Jeremiah is saying in 31, like, hey, rejoice, God has brought you out of exile, but never forget, this is where sin leads. Like, sin leads to death and sorrow, and they are buried in a foreign land, just like Jacob had to bury his beloved Rachel and move on, and their souls are weeping as they see you move. They are casualties of your sin, just like the children that Herod had killed are casualties of the sinfulness of the people of Israel who now have become just like Egypt. We are reminded in this piece that we see here tragedy before triumph. This is a story, this is kind of a, a pattern you see throughout Scripture. There is tragedy before triumph. There is lament before laughter. And even in the midst of the Christ coming and tidings of comfort and joy, 
You see sorrow. Why do you see sorrow? Because people are sinful and exiled from God and left upon their own. They will always choose evil. They will always choose to protect their own throne. The coming of the Christ, the King, is costly. Jesus brought a sword, this baby in a manger, and you've heard your elders talk about this over, over Advent. This baby is a declaration of war to the great dragon and war upon the sinfulness of our own hearts. There will always be lamentation before jubilation Evil kings will rage and slaughter, and even God's own son will be slaughtered. Matthew is kind of painting a little picture. There's a shade here of prophesying the death of the Son of God that would be slaughtered because of the sinfulness of people. The people lost in exile from God as a result of their sin, but the Deliverer has come and Christ has come to reunite God and man and to reclaim the kingdom and bring his people back into the fold. But even at the coming of the King, there is hardship. When we walk in faith and repentance, when we bow the knee, when our belief actually plays itself out in our behavior, there, it's costly. Some relationships are torn. Uh, Killing your sin is not an easy thing. Some of you have consequences of your behavior that linger. And yes, you are forgiven. Yes, you have confessed it and are walking in repentance of it, but it lingers still, the consequences of sin. People were buried in exile as a consequence of their sin. Were they brought back? Were they forgiven? Yes, But this is a reminder of how far sin will take us and it leads to death and the consequences, even though we are forgiven, that linger with us still. It's a warning to not protect our own thrones, but to bow the knee and give full reign to Christ on the thrones of our hearts. And even in the midst of this sorrow and sadness, Jeremiah says that when they are returned from exile, that the young women shall rejoice and dance and the young men and the old will be merry. And God says, I will turn their mourning into joy and I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. Gladness for sorrow. Those who mourn over their sin, we're going to get to that in the Beatitudes soon, that a true Disciple of Jesus is someone who laments and mourns over the sinfulness of their own heart, and those are the ones that will be comforted. Not those who are simply mourning over the consequences or the results of their sin or being caught, but those who truly mourn over their sin because it was rebellion to a holy God. This is an encouragement to us that even in our sorrow and in our sin, our sorrow as a result of our sin, I'm reminded of... um, Psalm 30, verse 5, but his anger is for a moment and his favor is for a lifetime. Aren't you thankful that God's anger is but for a moment? It might seem like a lifetime to you, but he's on a different timeline than you. His anger is but for a moment and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And in this heart wrenching story we see a good and gracious God who rules over all things and is ordering everything for his glory and for our joy and that God even uses sorrows and tragedies and suffering in our sanctification these things are not outside of God's good plan how could a good God allow for these children to be taken we could ask the same thing as we celebrate life? How could a good God allow this murder to continue on? There's answers to that, but what I can give you now in our time is that God does have a purpose and a plan and he rules over all things and everything is underneath his sovereign will. Nothing happens outside of it that he does not know about. And you may not understand why you are going through hardship. You may not understand the ins and the outs, but you know that you can trust him, the one who is all-powerful and all-good. Listen, just because you can't think of a good reason for your suffering doesn't mean there isn't one. 
Just because you can't think of a good reason for your suffering doesn't mean there isn't one. Just because you can't think of why God would allow this thing to happen doesn't mean there isn't a good reason. You think that Mary and Joseph may have had some questions about the events that were unfolding after the uh, visit of the Magi? Like this is wonderful time, the shepherds, and, and then Jesus grows, and then here comes the Magi, and they bring these gifts. And then all of a sudden, do you, you think maybe they might have a few questions as they're packing quickly their belongings because God told them they need to get out? Perhaps in their hearts they're saying, um, I thought this son that you gave us was going to be great. I thought that you were going to give him the throne of his father David. I thought he was going to rule forever. I thought that his kingdom would, would be no end. I, I thought that this child was going to be a message of great joy to all people, and if that's true, then why are they trying to kill him? I think, I think Mary and Joseph might have had a few questions like this. Contrary to Catholic popular opinion, Mary was a sinner, all right, in need of salvation, and she says this. If this is the case, then why are people trying to kill him, Lord? I thought he was supposed to save Israel from their sins, and they're trying to kill him, and so we're going to have to flee to Egypt. How are you going to do that from Egypt? But what, what does the holy couple do? What, what does Adam, or excuse me, what does Joseph and Mary do? They simply trust God. During Advent, um, my family read several times through the Christmas story and the different gospel um, narratives, and one thing that we continued to just be struck by was the, the trust and obedience of Joseph and Mary, in particular Joseph. The angel says to do this, and it says, and Joseph did it. He, he, he obeys, right? Not a ton is said about Joseph, the adopted father of Jesus, but we do know this, he trusted God. And the very mundane things, he trusted God. He protected his people. He trusted that he would take care of them. We saw his obedience. The angel commands them, tells them, and they do what the angel says. They didn't need to know the full story. All they needed to know was that God was a God who kept his promises. God was a God who keeps his promises, and God is a God who cannot lie. And I couldn't help but think, were they calling to mind their ancestors? And when we think about going through Hebrews, Hebrews 11, Abraham looks at his barren wife and his age and says, I don't know how you're going to make a great nation out of me, but okay, and walks in faithfulness, and God does it. Abraham, sacrifice your son. Well, I don't know how that's going to make a great nation, but I will trust you so much so that in order to keep your promise, you'll have to bring him back from the dead, so I'll trust you. That, that's what they're doing here. They're doing the exact same thing as the faithful people that came before them in the Old Testament, trusting in the Lord. Listen, as you faithfully discipline your children, you can trust the promise that God will produce good crop. <laughs> You're like, well, it's not working right now. All right, be faithful. Be faithful. What does faithfulness look like? One more talk, one more spanking. Whether it's in the early morning or at night or during church service, faithfulness, faithfulness, faithfulness. When you lie down, when you get up, be faithful and trust that God will bring about a good crop. As you faithfully evangelize, you can fully trust that your preaching is not in vain and that you will reap a harvest. You can know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness, when it's had its full effect, will be made perfect, complete. You're lacking nothing, James tells us. You can be confident that no matter what, no matter how dark the night of your soul may be, that the new mercies of God will dawn with the morning sunrise. I know that's hard for you to grasp in Dayton, Ohio, where you never see the sun. But it is there. <laughs> it is there. And the rain is there, and they are all held in God's perfect hand, and they're not meaningless. It reminds us here that nothing will stop God's plan. Nothing will stop God's plan. John Piper says, God makes satanic opposition and human sin serve the advancement of the gospel. This is what happens in the greatest event of all history when Jesus is crucified. The sinful actions of man actually carry out the will of God. And that's partly what Matthew is saying here as he's quoting these Old Testament prophets. In verse 15, 
And they remained there until the death of Herod, so that it might be fulfilled that had been spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. This fulfills Hosea, Hosea 11, the recap of Israel's story. He calls them God's son, as we've already mentioned. Matthew is saying that Jesus has fulfilled this prophecy and Jesus is the true son of God. And just as the people of Israel were brought out of the land of Egypt and just as they had been under the oppression of the Egyptians and what good could come from that, we see the story on this side of it now that God worked wonders and his mighty hand was strong to save his people. And in the same way, now God will save his people from their sins. And the Christ who had to flee to Egypt will return to the people who tried to kill him. Herod's efforts to kill Jesus actually advanced God's plan and proved that Jesus was in fact the Christ that all the Old Testament prophets had spoken of. If Herod hadn't gone after him, they wouldn't have gone to Egypt and the prophecy would not have been fulfilled. God is not stopped by evil. God is not even stopped by your sinfulness. Oftentimes, he sanctifies us in spite of us but do not kick against him. God's plan lives on. Verse 19, stick with me here. Verse 19, what does it say? This is the return, this is the third part of the story, the return to Nazareth. But when Herod died, don't pass over that. The man died, this Herod the Great, he died. He's mortal, but God's plan lives on. Yeah, evil will die. Evil will be snuffed out. I, I, I was meditating on that all week. I was so struck by that. But when Herod died, the man died. God's plan lives on. Behold, the angel of the Lord appeared in a dream just at the right time, just at the proper time. God knew when he was going to die. Joseph and Mary didn't know, but they were faithful in the land of Egypt. The angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream in Egypt. Rise, this is probably becoming a normal thing for him. He's like, hey, man, how you doing? Nice, good to see you. What's God saying? <laughs> Not as afraid anymore, maybe. Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought, to, uh, sought the child, uh, life is dead. And he rose and took them, the child, and they returned to the land of, of uh, Israel. Down here in, um, so he's afraid of, uh, of Herod's son, Archelaus, who was reigning in Judah. Uh, look at, uh, so he goes in the last part of 22, and he was afraid to go there. Joseph was afraid to go back because he was afraid that uh, this, um, descendant of Herod would carry out his father's evil intentions. So he was warned in a dream, again, withdrew to the district of Galilee. Verse 23, this is important. And he went and lived in the city of Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, I'm going to do some unpacking of this in cold pizza tomorrow by God's grace, so we'll save a lot of the details here for that. But if you notice these three sections, Matthew says, number one, so that it might be fulfilled that was spoken by the prophet, Hosea. Second one, so that it might be fulfilled that was spoken by the prophet, Jeremiah. And there are actually Old Testament references to that. Here, he says, so that it might be fulfilled that was spoken by the prophets, he would be called a Nazarene. Here's an interesting piece. So this is nowhere in the Old Testament does it say that he will be called a Nazarene. Um, and again, I'll, I'll unpack this um, more tomorrow, but here's, here's the, this, is where, this is where Matthew is such a master of the Old Testament that he's using like, similar phrases and similar words and word pictures to paint this really glorious picture for us, all right? Um, Nazareth sounds like Nazarene, as in referring to Numbers 11, I believe it is, where there are Nazarites who are holy warriors for God. It also sounds a lot like the Hebrew word branch. And so Matthew's kind of pulling all this. And basically what he is saying is, hey, I already told you that he fulfilled Hosea's prophecy. I already told you he fulfilled Jeremiah's prophecy. He just fulfills the whole Old Testament. Let me show you that. Whether they speak specifically of him or not, and, and they do speak specifically of Jesus, and he fulfills all of the Old Testament prophecies, even the feel, every nook and cranny, even when they're not directly talking about him, it is pointing towards Jesus being the Messiah. This is what Matthew is pulling for us. We see here a couple things, and this is kind of like the idea that Matthew is trying to kind of ball together and throw on the canvas for us, and it's this. We see here God's grace, one thing. We see God's grace. Herod died. Praise God. 
evil dies. God's plan lives on. And look at the grace of God that Jesus does not stay in Egypt. He would be right to do so. They tried to kill him. But yet he comes back to these stiff-necked, rebellious people who will eventually slaughter him. They tried to slaughter him in the beginning, and the story of his life here on earth ends with him being slaughtered, right? And he knows this, and yet he returns to the people so that Luke, the prophecy in Luke that is prophesied in Isaiah might be true of him, which he stood up and read, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is fulfilled in Christ. Verse 23 of our text today and he went and lived in the city called Nazareth so that it might be spoken to the prophets uh, and fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. Here's what he's emphasizing. One, that Jesus is the holy warrior who carries out God's will. That's number one. The, the fact that he goes back to Nazareth and it's, it, it's, a, it's a, a call to the holy warriors, the Nazarites, that Jesus is the holy warrior who carries out the will of God. Number two, Jesus is the righteous branch who shoots from the dead stump of Jesse and becomes a world-devouring tree. Those two things right there, those two glorious things. He's saying him going and living in Nazareth, being called a Nazarene, is showing you that Jesus is the holy warrior who carries out the will of God, and he is the righteous branch who shoots from the dead stump of Jesse. It was done. Left on their own, they were... Uh, taken into, uh, into exile because of their sin, but he's going to shoot from that dead stump and become a world-devouring tree. Somebody say amen. amen. All right, thank you. Those two glorious things, and here is something very significant, and this is the heart of what Matthew is trying to say when it comes to him being born in Nazareth, that the holy warrior and the righteous branch, those two glorious things will be found in Nazareth. That'd be like saying the Messiah will be born in Owensville, my hometown, which had two stop, well, one stoplight when I lived there. They have two now, so we're big time. Three cop cars, and they have the numbers written on tops of the cars because I guess three cop cars are too much to, <laughs> to uh, keep up with. Uh, like, uh, what's the movie Cars? My boys were watching the movie Cars in the town they go into, and it's just the blinking light. That's Owensville. It'd be like saying the Messiah is going to be born in Owensville. Like, like that's, that's not that big of a deal, right? Like, I was going to start naming cities that y'all live in, but y'all are super sensitive about that, so I didn't want to do that. And then you would just blame me for living in Oakwood or something. So I live in the ghetto of Oakwood, by the way. Um, the righteous branch, the holy warrior, is also Jesus, the humble servant. Jesus, the humble servant. That's what he's saying. Holy warrior, righteous branch, is a humble servant. Nazareth is a small, insignificant town. It's, it's out far away from other places, probably maybe a 50 or 100 people. They were all laborers. They were all, um, the word actually is they're builders. Um, and they would go into towns. They would build kind of as a community, and then they would go back out to their little hick town and, and live. And so, like, this wasn't that big of a deal. He wasn't born in Jerusalem. He wasn't, he wasn't, he was born in Bethlehem, but the prophecy is to be fulfilled that he will be a Nazarene to show his humility because even if the Messiah is known as Jesus of Bethlehem, well, that's the city of the great king. Right? That's the city of, of David and of Jesse, and that's got some pedigree to it. But no, the righteous branch and the holy warrior will, will come from Nazareth. When he comes in in Matthew 21, we'll see later on, probably like three years from now when we get to Matthew 21, uh, that the crowds went before him and followed shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, the triumphal entry. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And when he had entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus uh, from Nazareth in Galilee. And that's where everybody was like, what did, what did Nathaniel say? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Like for real? This doesn't seem very glorious. Matthew 21, the triumphal entry is to uh, Hosanna in the highest is a prophecy of Zechariah 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation is he. Humble, humble and mounted on a donkey, a beast of burden. Jesus himself 
soon after the triumphal entry, would leave that city as a beast of burden with the cross on his back and the sins of the world. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not account quality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even death upon a cross. The fact that he is Jesus of Nazareth is a reminder of the great humility of Jesus and just how deep, how far down Jesus had to descend to save us. Like That's how far down we were. This is a picture of how far our treachery separates us from God and just how far Jesus had to go to bring us back. Jesus is a reminder of his his humility that, that the people's treachery led them to shed the innocent blood of children and Jesus would have to shed his own innocent blood to bring us back. He returned to the people. He did not stay in Egypt. Eventually they would kill him. And all of this was a part of God's plan, that he would be numbered with the transgressors and bear the sins of many and make intercession for the transgressors. There is no sin, listen, there is no sin so great that Jesus cannot forgive it and cleanse it. There is no sin so great, so vile, that Jesus cannot forgive and cleanse. And there is no depth that he is not willing to go in order to bring you back, that you would bow the knee. No matter how deep your sin, his grace is deeper. Do you know that old hymn, Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus? Vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, his love is like a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Underneath me, all around me, is the current of his love. So we've been staring pretty closely at the the tapestry. I want to take just a few minutes to back up from the tapestry now and look at the whole thing, okay? This is the story of our text. Now let me give you the story of the Bible and and what Matthew is starting to kind of set us, he wants to set us off on the right uh, trajectory to show us throughout the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus is king. Story of our text, we broke that down. Here's the story of the Bible, Jesus and the dragon. And that's the title of our message today. Jesus and the dragon. The story of the whole Bible Both Old Testament and New Testament is a story of war, a war that has been raging since the beginning of time. And Matthew just, like I said at the beginning, Matthew just picks up the dangling strings of the Old Testament and keeps weaving this tapestry. And if you back up and look at the whole tapestry, you will see a picture, something like this, of an evil dragon with a child in its mouth, and this dragon's head is being crushed under the foot of the holy warrior. Perhaps something, I think we have a picture, perhaps something like this. This is St. George and the Dragon. This is a picture of St. George and the Dragon. If you don't have this tattooed on you or hang up in your home, you need to, all right? All the kids are going to be like, but Pastor Jeff said I could get it. All right, sorry about that, all right? But it's a good one to start with. Um, this is a picture of St. George and the Dragon, the evil dragon who had developed, who he had fed lambs to, but he developed a taste for human flesh and nobody would go out and they were going to send uh, the princess out. And St. George comes in and says, forget it. And he crushes him underfoot. You can see the lance that stuck through the dragon's mouth as it broke off and St. George trampling him down with his war horse and bringing his sword down upon him. This is, in fact, if you Google it, look, there's tapestries of this uh, in England. St. George is the patron saint of England because of his bravery in this. And, and the only thing that's lacking in this is, is a baby in the mouth of the, of the evil dragon. Satan, listen, is a baby devouring dragon at the edges of all the stories of the Bible. From the beginning to end, you see the evil dragon lurking. He hates God, and therefore he hates the things that remind him of God, in particular mankind, and specifically mankind's offspring, if you look at the scriptures. One of the signs of a nation reaching the pinnacle of its wickedness is, a, is child sacrifice. You see this. When, when, um, when Joshua was supposed to go in and take the land of Canaan, they had come to a point where they were offering children on the altar of sacrifice, the pinnacle of an evil society, the slaughter of innocent children. And we see this today, don't we? The similarities here. Herod killed the innocent children to protect his throne. And we can't help but see the similarities of the own evils of our own nation as the slaughter of innocent children by legal abortion is, is, uh, continues to go on to, to protect people's thrones. Abortion is modern day demon worship. When you talk to people about it, this is what they must know. 
People sacrificing children on the altar of their own convenience and sexual pleasures. Abortion is not health care. It is cold-blooded, premeditated murder. I'm going to step on a soapbox right here and say, listen, if you are a Christian, you cannot, in good conscience, in obedience to the Bible, vote for somebody in office who will push pro-choice. I'm going to step off of it now, okay? All right. You cannot. You cannot. Argue with me five ways from Sunday. You cannot. Abortion is a picture of the people's sacrifice on their own altar of their own convenience. They will be God. And listen, but we do the same thing, y'all. I will be God, and I will, I will tear down and sacrifice anything and send out my assassins to, in order to protect that. And this is why. why so why does the evil dragon hate the uh, people so much, and why does he in particular hate children? Number, three things, real quick. Number one, God made mankind in his own image, and Satan hates God and anything that resembles him. And I think in all of God's creation, uh, his image is seen most vividly in the joy, beauty, and innocence of a little child. Number two, all of humanity was created uh, for God's glory. Of all his creation, human beings in particular were created to bring glory to God, and Satan hates anything that brings glory to God. And number three, um, as we stated at the beginning of our time here, Satan and his demons believe in God, right? Satan and his demons believe in God. Go back to that picture, will you guys? Leave that up until I confuse you some more on my points, all right? That's good. Satan and his demons believe. Genesis 3.15, they believe this. They know this. Satan was there. I will, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and she, uh, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He's saying that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent and the serpent will bruise the heel of the one crushing him. This is Satan bruising the heel as Jesus is offered upon the cross. But in that moment, Satan is crushed. Ever since this time, the dragon has been seeking to destroy the seed of the woman. Since the beginning of the prophecy in Genesis 3.15, he's been seeking to destroy the seed of the woman. The dragon is lurking in the shadows of every story in Scripture to devour the seed of the woman, seeking, plotting, scheming to stop the prophecy from coming true. Through Cain, he killed Abel. We see him through the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We see him plotting. He's behind the plot to get rid of Joseph the dreamer uh, because if Joseph had not risen to prominence in Egypt, then his descendants uh, would have died of famine. We see him working throughout, so he, he tempts Potiphar's wife, and he puts him in jail. We see the evil dragon lurking on the edges in the darkness of all the stories of Scripture. He tried to pin David to the wall through the mad King Saul, and he has here in our story today Herod trying to kill the seed of the woman by killing these babies. When Jesus is born and Jesus is baptized and he goes into the wilderness. He's tempted by the devil. He has him thrown off, wants him to throw himself off the temple mount to destroy him. He's trying to destroy the seed of the woman because he knows, he knows this prophecy and he is afraid. And finally, he thinks, he believes on that day, that horrible day, that he had destroyed the seed of the woman. And as he looks at the broken body of Jesus nailed upon the cross, the evil dragon grins, a sulfurous grin, as Christ is laid in the tomb. Finally, my throne is secure. Little did the dragon know that his seeming victory, in fact, sealed his everlasting defeat. Amen? And this is, what, this is what God does through tragedy. He brings triumph. He brings beauty for ashes. Jesus said, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come, and they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Herod slaughtered the children to try to hold on to his kingdom. Jesus was slaughtered so that we might become welcomed into his kingdom. Herod took life to save it. Jesus gave life so that we might have life. And Jesus has completely defeated the dragon. He has completely defeated the dragon. And that means three things for us in closing. Here's what you're supposed to do. Here's what you're supposed to do. This is the, the story of Scripture, a picture of Jesus the King trampling under feet the evil dragon. Here's what you're supposed to do. Praise God, praise God and plunder the dragon's goods. Praise God and plunder the dragon's goods. 
Number one, how do you do that? Live freely in Christ's forgiveness. Colossians 2, 3 through 15, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, and he set it aside, nailing it to his cross, and he has disarmed rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is what Christ has done on the cross, and this is what we are called to do. Live freely in the forgiveness that is found only in Christ. And an old missionary friend, Carlos Demarest, who used to say all the time, praise God and shame on the devil. Praise God and shame on the devil. Because every time we walk in faith and repentance, and that is what we are doing, we are bringing glory to God and shame upon the devil's head as we walk in the forgiveness that Christ has given us, knowing that as Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So when Satan tempts you to despair and tells you of the guilt within, look up and see him there who made an end to all your sin, who trampled the evil baby devouring dragon underfoot. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul was counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Live in the forgiveness of Christ. Number two, live fully in Christ's righteousness. Fully in Christ's righteousness. Romans 12 one and two, we, we said this a lot during our, ser- our sermon series in Hebrews. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by what? By the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You have been forgiven. You are allowed access into the throne room of God. You are a child of the king, so live like it. Don't become like Egypt. Don't forget your God. 1 Peter 1, he says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Don't be stupid like you were before. You have eyes now. You're not dead anymore. Walk in faith and repentance, for he who has called you is holy, so you must be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Romans 12, 2a, don't be conformed to the world. Come out from among them. What was Israel supposed to do? Come out from them. Don't be like Egypt. You became Egypt. Come out from them. Therefore, come out from them and be ye separate. Be holy. You are a holy people, a holy nation, chosen by God, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who calls you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Number three. Number one, live freely in Christ's forgiveness. Number two, live fully in Christ's righteousness. And finally, number three, live Fearless in Christ's victory. 2 Timothy 2, 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of who? David. He is the king. He was the one that was supposed to come. As preached in my gospel, for which I am now suffering, bound in chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound, Paul says. It is not bound. They can kill you. They can trample you under feet. The evil dragon still lurks, but truth will win. Herods will die. We might be bound, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, he says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. And if we deny him, he will also deny us. But if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And if you see this picture of the great dragon lurking throughout on this tapestry of the story of Scripture, you have to be reminded of Revelation 12. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan and the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. This is what happened when Christ came. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accused them day and night before our God and they have conquered him. This is your job. They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their life even to death. So, fight 
the good fight and lay hold on eternal life. The war has been won. Bank everything on the promise of the God who cannot lie. Jesus is king, sitting upon his throne. There are still work to be done. The war is won, but there are still skirmishes to fight. But Jesus has bound the strong man and has and is plundering his goods. So rally to the king, as Pastor Matt reminded us last week. Join in the plundering of the dragon's goods. In all the stories of the dragons, we see that dragons love glory and they love treasure. They love glory and they love treasure. One of the greatest treasures to reclaim, if not the greatest treasure to reclaim, that Christ claimed to reclaim, is people. This is why we evangelize. This is the mission that King Jesus has tasked you with, to go and to make disciples of all nations. That sounds like nations should be Christian, by the way. To make disciples of all nations, teach them to obey everything that he has commanded, plunder the dragon's goods by godly marriages, Godly parenting, plunder the dragon's goods by, by biblical voting this election season, plunder the dragon's goods by faithfulness to your covenant community in hospitality and serving one another and breaking bread together and singing songs together and praying together and rebuking one another and forgiving one another. This is how we plunder the dragon's goods. Plunder the dragon's goods until all the treasure that he has grasped in his claws belongs to King Jesus. Plunder the dragon's goods until the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Amen? Father, we thank you that the victory belongs to Christ. The evil dragon only but has a lie as his weapon. He, his teeth have been knocked out by how he spits venomous lies. Father, Help us to combat those lies with the truth. May we, may we join in praising our God by plundering the dragon's goods, knowing that no matter how loud he roars or how high he seems to stand or soar, that he has been defeated and that all things have been worked and are working for your glory and for our joy. And we look forward to that day we look forward to that day where every knee will bow and tongue confess. May we plunder the dragon's goods in the meantime. In Jesus' name, amen.